Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Hi, my name is Gary Cook and welcome to this podcast with Senior Times. George Hamilton, the nation holds its breath. David O'Leary steps up to take that penalty, the biggest moment in the history of Irish sport. What was it like? It was uh, one of those days that you will never forget. Uh, It was an an enormous privilege to be in the comedy box that afternoon in Genoa because it it was such a significant occasion. Uh, It was the second time, as you're well aware, that Ireland had qualified for a major tournament, but only the first time that they got to the World Cup. So this was something very, very special uh, in the Irish sporting psyche, that they'd got to an international tournament in West Germany two years before. Uh, It had almost happened by, uh, by... chance because it was a Scottish win in Bulgaria that sent them there. There wasn't a a moment at at Lansdowne Road as it then was or at some away stadium where the Irish suddenly realised they were there. They were sitting at home watching television uh, when Scotland qualified them through that Gary Mackay goal. And then I think it was all a bit surreal, the the actual tournament itself, because it was only an 18 tournament. They only three matches, but then they got got knocked out by the Dutch. Uh, And and it was just, it it was almost like the hors d'oeuvre to the the, the banquet that they'd got a taste fans had got a taste for what was coming uh, and so it, there was a big expectation that the team could qualify for the World Cup and when they did with that uh, marvellous run that took them there well then that that was just the stage set for something really really special and of course the World Cup although the matches themselves weren't particularly distinguished three draws in the group games but of course one of those a dramatic comeback against England in the opening game it all built up to this and the, the fact that they qualified along with the Dutch, uh, they played their game in uh, in Sicily, and then they ended up with exactly the same record as the Dutch. Goals for, against, points a whole lot. So there had to be the drawing of lots. And it could have been West Germany and Milan that Ireland went on to play, but it wasn't. It was Romania in Genoa. The match wasn't very distinguished. It was a match that you thought that Ireland were sort of teetering on the tightrope with Hadji's Romania might come and just knock them off. But no, it got to nil-nil and, and full-time arrived. It got to nil-nil. It was nil-nil and full-time arrived. It went into extra time. And then they just suddenly got the feeling that this actually could go to a shootout here. It didn't look like they were going to win the match, but it, it go to a shootout. And who knows? And it did go to a shootout. Uh, and then, of course, everything went into sharp focus, sharp relief, because five kicks each, nobody missed. It's 4 all. And I've already been told from Dublin that they're showing this on the news as well as on Network 2 as it was. So with no other television station in Ireland other than the two RTE channels, anybody who was watching TV in Ireland had to be watching this. So when uh, Tim Ofte stepped up and Packy Bonner made that triumphant save, suddenly this was the moment. This moment was going to live forever one way or the other. It might, if it hadn't gone in, of course, it would be remembered with regret. And then we'd have gone into sudden death and who knows what might have happened then. But that precise moment was the moment that it could all be decided. And that's when the nation held its breath. So David O'Leary was under pressure, but you were under pressure to come up with the, exactly the right lines, which you did. Mm. But it, that must have been a pressure in itself. 
Well, I suppose, Gary, it's it's a pressure in the sense that any any broadcast is pressure because you're you're performing on the tightrope without the safety net. It's live, it's unscripted, and it lasts as long as it lasts. And you're hoping to augment the picture, which everybody can see, with something opposite, something that doesn't get in the way, something that will enhance the experience. And it seems it, it, it seems to me that in a moment like that, you if, if you're a professional commentator, you, you will find the words to say, sometimes better than others, but you will be in a position, a bit like the, the musician who plays in the jazz band and his solo comes along. You know where it starts, the rest play their part and you're out front on your saxophone or your guitar or your piano doing your riff. You know where you're going with it and you know where you're going to end up. So you trust yourself to do it in performance. And that's, I think, what any commentator does. He trusts him or herself to do it in performance. And that's where these moments come from. Uh, so yes, pressure, but not pressure that you feel because you're, you're, you're living the moment. Sure, I know you're at that stage a hugely experienced commentator, but still, it just it just strikes me as something that you know you can't unsay something that's the wrong no. thing, you know. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it is kind of the the uh, Kenneth Wilson moment. I think it's all over. It is now, uh, uh, yeah. Which is probably the greatest, with respect, George, the greatest line. I'd go along with you about Kenneth Wilson I mean, that that was that was magnificent. And it's uh, if I could go off on a, a slight tangent here. To please do. He, to think that he, within four years of uttering that line, was on the point of being dropped as the commentator for the World Cup final if England had qualified because some genius of the BBC thought David Coleman would do a better job. And Wilson Home had to threaten him with legal action. Now, as we know, uh, it didn't get to that because uh, England didn't make it to the 1970 World Cup final. But uh, it's, it, that, that staggers me. But it, it goes on in, in broadcasting all the time that uh, people who are never seen and never heard make decisions that have enormous ramifications for the audience watching and listening and uh, it was it was to Wilson's home's great relief uh, that he did do the World Cup final but then his BBC career ended soon after that because Coleman was somebody's somebody's fancied man yeah, I often found it strange because Kenneth Wilson home, by the time I started watching football in the early 70s, uh, he was already on, I think it was Tyne T's television doing stuff mm. with, with, with the big match and all that. And I remember he's, he sounded like this guy from, you know, a, a hundred years ago. Uh, and yet it was actually only a few years since he had been the guy on the uh, at the World Cup final, I find that it's a it's a kind of um, an insight into how quickly things change in the industry. Yeah. Uh, mm. But uh, beautiful commentator, and of course he went on to do stuff. I remember in Italia, uh, in the Serie A for uh, Channel Four, I think he was part of that. Yeah. In the early nineties, and uh, uh, by the way, George, uh, I mean you have had so many experiences. You you've travelled the world, and uh, you know with 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 football and athletics, and 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 presumably other things as well. Um, but I mean, what is what is life like for you on the road? Is it is do you enjoy it? Do you because you must spend a lot of time on the road. Yes, uh, it's a it's an aspect of the job that uh, is a is, is hugely attractive to me. Um, I grew up in, in Belfast, and I didn't really travel much in my uh, adolescence. I then, uh, at the age of seventeen, went on a student exchange to uh, Germany, uh, which I enjoyed, but uh, I had no desire to uh, extend it beyond the three weeks that that I was there. I was happy to come home, uh, happy in my own situation in Belfast uh, and finishing up at school and going on to university. 
And then I was uh, uh, faced with the prospect of returning to Germany uh, for a year uh, because that was part of the degree that I was doing in German French. We had to go abroad for a year to uh, to master the language, uh, either Germany or France or six months in both. So I chose Germany because I found French an easier language to get on with and didn't think it would be too difficult to pick it up again. But I figured if I went to France and came back speaking fluent French, I'd never get the German back. So that's why I chose Germany. And it was going to Germany that turned me into an inveterate traveler, because while I was there, um, I, I went everywhere I possibly could. I didn't just hang about the town that I was in. And I went I went to Berlin. I went to Salzburg in Austria. I went to Munich. I went all, all over the place, and I followed football teams around as well. And I had the most magnificent experience in Germany at that year. And as I say, it turned me into an inveterate traveler. So when I'm on the road for a match, uh, I enjoy the going to the, the venue, the city, enjoy walking around the city, kind of get a feel for it if it's a new place that I'm visiting for the first time, and try to get myself some memories of my time in this place because I reckon I'm privileged to be there. And if you think about it too, Gary, if I'm going to commentate on a Champions League game on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, I am seeing the city alive at its working best, not like a, a city breaker who goes at the weekend and sees it at the weekend. I'm seeing the city as it lives. Uh, and it's and it's the experiences I've had uh, through through wandering the streets of Milan or Paris or Rome or Budapest have been magnificent. And I, I love going and I love going back. And your actual schedule, by the way, when you're when, when you're working, the timelines are relatively short, aren't they? I mean, you mm. don't have much time to kind of get it wrong. And And I say this as somebody who actually did a trial commentary myself many years ago for RTE because uh, Tim O'Connor was interested. Uh, he was out of sport, obviously, for the, for the viewers. Tim, uh, uh, Tim was, a, 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 I think, an extraordinary character. I think it would be fair to say. But what I remember was, if you're not experienced at that stuff, it, you can, it can become overwhelming very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, you sound like, you always sound like somebody who is totally on top of the situation. Where does that well, come from? <laughs> what do you do, though? You do. So. Uh, where does it come from? That's, it's, it's hard to know. Um, I think uh, the, the Roy Keane line uh, springs to, to mind. Roy Keane's view that uh, prepare to fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's the essence of it, that you, you don't put yourself uh, in front of a microphone without being sure of yourself, without knowing what it is you're there to do. Um, and so that's the homework aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that you must not allow yourself to be in any sense overwhelmed by the occasion as a, as a player would say you know okay it is the World Cup final but it's it's just another match you know it's 90 minutes of football we have to beat the opposition this is a commentary I've got to do I can enjoy the prospect of it being the World Cup final before it and when it's been done but while it's actually happening it's a football match and I, and I don't do anything different so it's I approach it exactly the same way as any other I was quite interested. Years ago, uh, John Motson was talking on, you remember that show, Pebble Mill? Uh, and he was talking about the, the 1990 World Cup uh, uh, shootout with Germany, or West Germany, as they still were, I think, at that point. Mm. Uh, and he was saying, mm. he said a very odd thing. <laughs> he said, he said, um, uh, you're so engrossed in what you're doing that um, in actual fact, I almost didn't give a toss you one. Is it really... You know, that that tricky? Maybe for him it was. I don't know. He was a great commentator. I loved him. But Yeah. But um, 
No, I, I, if if Ireland are playing, I, I I will give it to us who wins because it's a better. <laughs> it's going to be a better broadcast for all of us. It's, yeah, yeah. For those those of us involved, those watching, it, it's going to be a better broadcast if they do well. It's more difficult to do a, an Irish team if it's Ireland we're talking about uh, in this context uh, when when they're not doing well when when you're when you're you're not trying to help them get out of a bad situation, but but you're you're trying to be as positive as you can be because you know that your your audience is on one side, and but that's without being biased, but at going down as down the middle as you can. But certainly there there would be an emotional attachment on my part to the result because there would be an Irish team involved. But, but that must be tricky in itself, though, to get that right balance between, you know, because sometimes commentators can at times sound a little bit jingoistic. You, you've always given me the impression that you had that perfect balance between, of course, George Hamilton wants Ireland to win, but he's a professional and he kind of knows what the score is. It's uh, That would be the way I would approach it. Yes, I, I don't think there's any particular value in being the jingoistic commentator because you're then, you're then going to annoy people by, by getting... Getting too carried away on the, on the flow of the thing. You're there. You're there as as I view it to enhance the experience, yeah. not to get in the way. And I think if you become a fan with a microphone, you you will get in the way because if you put yourself in a grandstand beside some guy who's mouthing his opinions throughout the game, you're going to get fed up pretty quickly because that's what he's doing. He's not. It's it's of no assistance to you in enjoying the experience. Him being there and 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 in your ear all the time. And that's what I think it would be uh, with a commentator who was too, as you to use your word, jingoistic. Uh, it, it then becomes an annoyance more than a help. And this capacity for oration, George, that's a tricky enough mix. Where does it come from? This or desire for oration? That's uh, hard, hard to know. Um, I would equate it possibly to uh, the the fact that my uh, discipline uh, was in languages. Uh, that I have always been fascinated by words, uh, that I was a crossword addict from a very early age, that I'm interested in where words come from. Um, I was just reading only, only today about uh, someone who'd bought themselves a, a, a cognate dictionary, which is uh, basically uh, telling where the roots of the words are that in the Indo-European uh, language family, which includes English and Irish and German and French and all the Romance languages, our way out to Russian as well. You find words that are the similar across various languages mm -hmm. and seeing those connections. In other words, I, I've always had an awareness of words and, and precision in the use of words. So I'd, I'd say that's that's where it started, but where it was honed, uh, and I, I make no bones about this, was in the way I was trained in the BBC, who must be the well, then they were, without question, the best at it, at getting the best out of people and at keeping you on the straight and narrow and delivering you to the point where you could deliver what was of, of the finest uh, excellence for them. So do you talk about it in your book uh, about Joy Williams, who I think was the head of uh, BBC yeah. Radio in Northern Ireland, uh, the sport part of it. And yeah. uh, the feeling I get is that you you, you seem to inspire people uh, to 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 be inspired by you. In other words, you were, you were very good at at at, uh, at impressing people from a very early age. That's the feeling I got because I know what it's like when you're trying to in a big organization when you're trying to kind of impress people and they're not that impressed. That's not a nice well, place think, to be. No, and I, but I think there are two sides to, to that. Uh, accepting uh, your your compliments uh, with as much uh, humility as I can. I, I would I would have to say that. 
Uh, on the other side, there had to be a willingness on her part, Joy Williams' part, mm. uh, to be the mentor. And she was she was very very good at that. Uh, and there are and many people that I can think of who have been uh, mentored by her, who have gone on to um, to to uh, be be su- successful in broadcasting careers. Um, Michael Nesbitt, Mike Nesbitt, now a, a Unionist Party, Ulster Unionist Party politician, for many years frontman on Ulster Television, uh, came along after me and was another that Joy looked after and ter- turned him in, into a consummate broadcaster. Mark Robson, who commentates on Sky, is another who would have benefited from uh, Joy's tutelage. So, you know, it's uh, it, th- that side of it has to be acknowledged too. And equally, uh, the head of Current Affairs Radio, Dan Gilbert, uh, Cliff Morgan in London, you know, pe- people like that, people who were prepared to give uh, someone they, they reckoned could do it a chance to develop. Um, I think, and, and, and some broadcasting managers' minds, there is an arrogance that, that they know better than the people who are out front. Well, actually, um, Joy and Cliff and Dan uh, were people who wanted the best out front and, and were happy to stand back and let it let those out front get on with it. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a lesson in that in management as well. Well, it certainly worked to your to your advantage because you seem to take advantage of it uh, of it pretty quickly. Now, I was kind of interested in. I know you're in Queen's University, uh, and you you were interested, obviously, in in playing football as well, and you played for mm. them. Uh, and you were interested in kind of having a bit of a, a bigger career, weren't you? There was talk mm. that Porter Down was it Porter Down were interested yeah, in yeah. you, uh, yeah. and uh, that that didn't quite materialize. Tell us a little bit about about your your actual love for for playing the game. Well, that uh, grew out of, of being taken along as a kid to see my dad's team, Cliftonville, uh, when he, he played for them in the 1930s. Uh, and I, I just enjoyed the whole experience of being at a football match with my dad and, and wanted to, to play football and kicked about on the street a lot. Uh, the Eamon Dunphy and John Giles School of Street Football. I was, <laughs> I was a pupil there too. Uh, but uh, when I went to school... Uh, it was frowned upon. Association football was frowned upon in the grammar schools of Northern Ireland. It was rugby that was played. And uh, as a result, I didn't get the opportunity to play football as a, a teenager. Uh, we, we did enter teams in summer leagues and that sort of thing, but that didn't really go anywhere because summer leagues tended to be full of uh, part, the part-time pros of the Irish League who were playing under assumed names uh, to get a few bob from the summertime. So teams like ours would get hockeyed off the pitch by these experienced players. So that didn't work out. It was only when I got into uh, Queen's, which had its proper uh, association football club, uh, that I could actually be a part of a, a setup that put out teams at the weekend and that I that I could play for. Uh, so I was keen to progress that. Uh, and it was in the summer of 1970, after my second year in Queen's, that I signed up for a coaching course because I was going to do my badges. Uh, and I went uh, to this coaching course which happened to be uh, on at Queen's University uh, playing fields. Uh, and the, it was run by professional coaches. Uh, and there were a lot of, um, again, Irish league players there who were doing their badges. Uh, and part of it was practical. Um, part of it was actually playing, uh, to put, you know, putting it, the coaching into practice. And so I found myself on the pitch with Irish league players and I was uh, thoroughly enjoying the experience. And at the end of one of the sessions, uh, this uh, uh, football manager uh, Porter Down uh, Gibby McKenzie a Scot who'd been around the Irish League quite a while he came to me and he said uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't fancy coming to play for us and I said gosh that'd be terrific 
fully aware that that has team in the Irish league that might give me the chance that I might make a breakthrough. But I said, I can't really sign for you now because I'm going to Germany in six weeks. And they said, well, now don't worry about that. When you come back, uh, give me a ring. And of course, uh, when I came back, my father imparted the news that Gibby McKenzie had got the boot and was no longer a border die and was no longer management. And that was the end of my fledgling career, up in smoke. <laughs> Travelling with Expressway and your free travel pass is made easier with a reserved seat. When booking journeys at expressway.ie, make sure to select seat-only reservation free travel scheme and pay just €2 Euro per trip to guarantee your seat. Bookings can also be made from ticket machines in stations and priority boarding will be given to those who book in advance. Travel without a booking is still more than welcome, if you prefer, provided we have space on board. Take it easy with your free travel pass and expressway.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Right back, weren't you? Left back. Left back. Left back. Okay, so in the mold of uh, Maldini or uh, uh, Stuart Pearce or Dennis Irwin? Tell you who my men, my men were. Um, Bob McNabb of Arsenal and David Nish was the Leicester City, Derby County. Derby County, yeah. They were, they were, my, they were my role models. Um, and I tried to uh, emulate them. And I suppose... It, it's a long time ago now, but um, I do remember playing, and that I think I was a I was kind of a fancy myself as a wing back. What would be a wing back now? Um, you know, and the one that pushes on and and tries to augment the attack. But I, I, I did did put in the odd tackle too. George, you mentioned that that your dad. Uh, Jim played for Cliftonville and uh, also you had other family members, uh, Uncle Fred and his half-brother Tom, and they had um, significant sporting careers themselves. They did. Um, Tom Tom McMurray played uh, cricket for Surrey. Um, he was not a regular first-teamer, uh, but he was uh, on, the, on the books um, and played professionally for Surrey, uh, second team, uh, and made the occasional first-team appearance in the county championship. And one famous occasion uh, when England were playing uh, Australia uh, in a test match at the Oval, Surrey's home ground in South London, uh, the practice was at that time to have the home team provide England's 12th man. Um, and the event that they needed uh, somebody to go on, it would be on the field to fill in as an extra fielder if someone had to leave the field for whatever reason. And Tom was uh, called into action so actually played in a test match for England against Australia and very much impressed Don Bradman, the, the great Australian batsman, with his fielding ability. The thing was, too, when Tom was uh, in England as a cricketer, uh, there, there wasn't the scope for winter cricket that there is now. 
Uh, and cricketers often uh, played professional football to keep themselves fit in the winter. And he had a career with, with three different uh, English professional football teams while he was a cricketer with Surrey. Um, my, he, he was brother of my uncle Fred, uh, who was married to my mother's sister. Uh, Fred McMurray got one cap for Ireland uh, against Scotland, I think, at uh, College Park in Dublin uh, in 1939. Um, and, but for the intervention of the war, uh, World War II, uh, Fred McMurray would have undoubtedly have played more for, for Ireland. Uh, he kept wicket for North Down Cricket Club uh, in Ulster. And uh, when his career ended as a player, he was a, an, a, an umpire umpired with great distinction for many years. It very well-known name in cricketing circles. So, yeah, the family uh, interest in sport extended uh, far and wide. Uh, so it was good training for uh, Know Your Sport, of course, which <laughs> was you and the great Jimmy McGee were on yes. for, uh, for so long. I, I was interested to see that you were, you were saying they regularly, you regularly got uh, viewers of <laughs> 750,000. Yeah, I did, amazing. <laughs> and they still took you off the air. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was I saying earlier about management, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah. When, of course, we, we can't overlook the fact that... Um, Satellite TV was was in its infancy, and um, the, there wasn't another domestic Irish outlet like uh, I think TV Three hadn't come along yet when we started Know Your Sports. So we, we you know, those, those big audiences were a, were a reflection of the times that were in it. But I mean, there would be equivalent, I, I'm sure, equivalent audiences now. Maybe not as big in numbers, but in terms of share, uh, there would be the, a, a, an equivalent audience available now. If there was such a program as Know Your Sport, but they 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 took they took it off the air. They wanted to take it off the air, uh, but it was, seemed to be getting in the way because it was sport. It wasn't true light entertainment. It wasn't variety. So they wanted rid of it. And Tim O'Connor saw its value, and and he took it into the the sports department and paid for it out of his budget. But then when Champions League rights and and all sorts of other rights started eating into what funds he had available, he had to let it go because he couldn't afford it because it wasn't primary sport but it's, 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 I, I still believe it's a crime shame that it was taken off the air and the very fact that it's still talked about you know all these years later 23 years after the last edition of New Year's Sport went on the air and people still talk about it it surely says something well it certainly says there's an insatiable appetite actually for that kind of stuff and it was a, it was a very entertaining uh, show that you know got into the psyche the public consciousness if, if something isn't any good the audience, as you know, will let you know. Mm. Anyway, let, let's uh, move on, George. There's a couple of things that I'm I'm, I'm very uh, intrigued by, and that is you grew up as a Presbyterian in Belfast, uh, um, and it, you also had this, uh, as you say yourself, fascination with the South. There was mm. stuff about the, so. So where was that coming from? Well, for the first years of my life, we didn't have a motor car, uh, and uh, most people on our road didn't have a car. And then when we eventually got a car when I was 10 years of age, uh, it, it, we, we would go on holiday in the car. And the place to go on holiday was a little further than Port Rush, where you'd have gone on the train on the north coast. Uh, so we'd head to Donegal. And then we'd head a bit further afield, and that would bring us south to Kerry and Cork. And our next-door neighbours, a family called Long, they, they went on a road trip once, and they simply went all around the south of Ireland as best they could. And, and when they came home, they had two cats with them, which they called Dingle and Kerry. They'd been that far. Uh, and Peter Long, the, the, the son of the household, he, he was a chum of mine. And uh, 
we we you know, comparing notes about where we'd been and what we'd seen, and it just just because it was different. I mean, the partition of the island that happened in 1921, 40 years on, the, how Northern Ireland had developed compared to the rest of Ireland was very different, and you, you, there were different things about like the. The packet of Rolo that you got in uh, Dublin <laughs> didn't have a, the same type of Rolo as the packet of Rolo you got in Dungannon. You know, it, it was simple things like that. So it, 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 piqued, it piqued my my imagination, and and I, I then discovered a magazine called Spotlight, uh, which featured uh, Irish show bands, and this was in tandem with me discovering Radio Erin on my transistor radio that I'd been given for my. Uh, and passing of the 11 plus as a gift and um it's because it was different i mean we listened to radio luxembourg as well because luxembourg was exotic and they played pop music and listened to uh radio Aaron because they played pop music but a different kind of pop music these show bands that i was reading about in, uh, in spotlight magazines so all of this added together and got got me intrigued by what went on in the South. And so all of that together, Gary, when, when the time came uh, and the chance was there to work for RTE and then to move uh, to RTE, I had by then added on the icing, which were the occasional visits to Lansdowne Road to cover Ulster or Ireland. And I was ready, ready to sample the, this life in its entirety. Yeah, because I know you, you did do rugby initially for BBC Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and you also were... Uh, doing the radio, uh, Good Morning Ulster in mm. the in the mid seventies, and you were that was a kind of you were doing yes. multi purpose journalism. So so you must have been dealing with mm. some of the well some of the the madness that went on at that time. It must have mm. been a bit of a baptism of fire. It was. It certainly was. I mean, uh, I did rugby because they were oversubscribed with football reporters. Uh, they were all part time reporters with day jobs like civil servants and school teachers and lawyers. Um, that's the, the, the group I joined. So I started doing rugby. That's why I started. It was rugby I was doing. Um, I, there was no living to be made in, um, in sports at that time in Belfast because there wasn't enough, there weren't enough outlets. Um, so I got a, the opportunity to do a bit of current affairs freelancing to augment, uh, anything I might get at the weekend. I mean, this is me fresh out of university and trying to make my way. Uh, and in order to try and regularize my income, uh, I applied for a job as a continuity announcer, which was a contract uh, with regular pay. Um, I didn't get it, um, but the job came up again. Uh, and the second time I went for it, I did get it. Uh, so I read the continuity announcements and read the news. Uh, and on one occasion, there was a, a I don't know, a, a, an editorial in the Belfast newsletter that for some reason uh, was had a, a, a comic line in it, uh, which I delivered with what I discovered was decent comic timing, which uh, brought me to the attention of the head of programs who thought that I might make a, a fist of being a presenter of a, of a regular show. And that was how I ended up on Good Morning Ulster. But I had no background in, in the, the political side of things. But then again, we're into the area, the Joy Williams area, where others like Terry Sharkey, Robin Harris, Andy Coleman, Des McGee, producers who knew their stuff were minding me. I was the front man, uh, but I was being well-minded. Uh, but it was it was a baptism of fire, and there was an awful lot of unpleasantness going on at the time. I mean, the very first news bulletin I, I read uh, was an unscheduled bulletin because uh, the loyalist reaction to the Sunningdale Agreement had brought down the power-sharing executive. It was a loyalist strike. 
the UWC strike. Um, so yes, I was in the thick of the events. If I wasn't actually in the middle of them physically, I was in in the middle of them delivering the news about them. I know you were worked briefly in RT in the late seventies, and then you got the call BBC London. Uh, that must have been a leap into the big league at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that was that was the the thing that changed uh, everything basically for me because uh, this this is yes the big league as you put it. Every everybody who begins in regional BBC wants to end up in London, and I was no different. Uh, and that was an opportunity. I mean, even Fred Cogley, the head of sport at the time, said you have to you have to go for that. Uh, and it was BBC Radio, and it was. It, it it was the big league. I mean, there's no question. I was doing English First Division every Saturday afternoon. Uh, I was doing. Uh, I did the Olympic Games for them. Um, you know, I did also all manner of big things. I, I did the Alex Ferguson's first successful European trophy when Aberdeen beat Real Madrid in the Cup Winners' Cup in Sweden. Uh, I did Aston Villa winning the European Cup. You know, all, all those big things. And and it, it was it was a wrench in a sense to come back. But at the same token. Uh, the circumstances in Dublin had changed. Tim O'Connor was now calling the shots in sport. He wanted to put on first division football on Saturday afternoons uh, on TV. And he wanted as his commentator, somebody who would be identified with the product as opposed to just another Irish commentator grafted onto it. And so he, he approached me with his idea. Uh, and I, I took a bit of a leap into the dark with that. Um, but then Jack Charlton arrived and the next 10 years, Changed everything. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty magical time, uh, and uh, uh, you know, these days people uh, like to think that you know it, it sort of kick-started the Celtic Tiger. Such was its effect yeah. on the Irish psyche. Who knows? I want to talk a little bit about some of the personalities uh, that you that, that you've been dealing with that you that you've met. So Jack Charlton seems like a good guy to start with, and I was really interested, mm. intrigued to hear that you describe going to pick him up from mm. an airstrip in Northern Ireland to take him to an under-17s international match uh, between, uh, I think it was the North and the South, as far as I'm, I can yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. And you, so, so you seem to be pretty in with him pretty quickly. Mm. What was he like? Well, I had I had worked with him uh, as a co-commentator uh, when I was with the BBC. So I actually knew him and he knew me. Not terribly well, but uh, I wasn't exactly a stranger when he got the job as the Republic of Ireland manager. And uh, it was strange how strange how things work out. But it was a match between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, and it was held in the Junior International Stadium in East Belfast. And Jack wanted to go to the game to run his eye over the, the youngsters. And um, the FAI, as I recall, uh, weren't that keen to fund this trip from his home in the northeast of England. So Jack... Uh, decided he would drive himself to, it was a boat actually, the, the airstrip was another story. Uh, Jack drove himself to uh, either Stranraer or Ken Ryan, wherever the ferry was coming from in Scotland, and crossed as a foot passenger. Uh, and I picked him up. Uh, it was an arrangement that we arrived at uh, through the good offices of Stephen Alkin, the uh, football editor at the time on Sports Stadium in RTE. Uh, but he reckoned if uh, Jack was going to come like that, uh, we we could offer our services as a taxi company and uh, take advantage of the fact that we'd have them to ourselves for that length of time. So, yeah, I went up my own, picked him up at the ferry, brought him to the game. Uh, he was never going to get there for the start because uh, the timing of the ferry was such and the kickoff time d- didn't tally at all. 
But he got there before half time and uh, made quite a, an impact with his arrival, as you can imagine. This uh, World Cup winner, who's the Republic of Ireland manager, just rocking up uh, into the stand at this small stadium. And you had a good relationship with him, it seems. Yes, indeed. Yes. I mean, that's not to say there weren't moments when there would have been the, you know, he would have taken exception to something I said or did. Like, okay. But, uh, Could you give us an example of one? Well, we we had arranged to do an interview with him about uh, on a Sunday night before a Wednesday international. Uh, and the the big story at the time was John Aldridge, who had, he didn't score for Ireland for over, he played over 20 times before he, he, he got his first goal, as I recall. Uh, so the, there was a lot of debate at the time about John Aldridge uh, and should he should he play or should he not? And we'd taken this room at the airport hotel where the team stayed at the time, set it up as a TV studio, and Jack came along. We were hoping to get five minutes for a sports scene, the Sunday evening sports program, program at the time. Uh, anyway, when the conversation started, I was primed. I, I had to ask him about the Aldridge situation. And whatever way it went, uh, he didn't like my line of questioning. Uh, and he took issue with it. Uh, and uh, I won't say an argument developed, but, uh, but the debate got quite warm and uh, and healthy, shall we say. Um, and five minutes ran on to 15 or 20. He wasn't a man to get up and walk out, storm out if he didn't like something. He'd try to argue the case and get the better of you that way. So we got between 20 and 25 minutes of, of an interview. Uh, and he left in a state of, of so much not very happy with what he'd been put through. Uh, but we got some terrific television. We showed the whole thing. But by the Monday, by the next day, it was all forgotten. And he was he was back to his normal, genial self. I remember one time uh, Michael Lester asked him a question uh, on, on the touchline just after a game. The question was more of a statement. It, it read a little bit more like a statement. It was a statement before the question. And Jack yes. Jack barks at him and says, Who's asking the questions? Me or you? Uh, and uh, and uh, in, more aggressively than that, I can tell you. And uh, yeah. uh, Bill was... Uh, <laughs> Bill was there going, well, I must say that's a little bit rude. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Giles, he goes, yeah, to be fair, he, he, he was going on a bit. <laughs> it was very, very funny. Um, I'll tell you where that was. That was in Luxembourg. Was it? I remember, I remember it well. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, Alex Ferguson. Um, and you... You know, go right back to that night when they won the the, the Cup Winners' Cup in '83. Hmm. Uh, uh, what was uh, what was dealing with him like? Well, I find him again uh, a very straightforward man, but I, I and, and I never had any difficulty with him. Uh, and, but that I think is is as much to do with um, maybe the fact that I wasn't uh, in his pocket in his in his ear day and daily like a, a Fleet Street or a, a Manchester journalist might be. Uh, but I, I find it very straightforward to, to get on with. And I think I, I actually helped myself uh, without realizing it. Uh, when I find myself uh, doing a pre-match piece beside the pitch in, in Munich, uh, where Manchester United were playing, and um, we were due to do them. Uh, th- this was Champions League. We were due to cover them on the Saturday uh, away to Southampton. And uh, I he came out to look at his players warming up. And I knew that I'd be wanting to interview him after the game in Southampton. And just as a matter of courtesy, uh, went to introduce myself to him. Uh, And he was a bit taken aback at the fact that someone would approach him 
in the circumstances, normally journalists wouldn't be on the pitch or beside the pitch to get that close to him before a game. But I picked my words carefully and I did say that uh, we did meet once uh, and where we had met was at the semi-final of that Cup Winners' Cup run away to a team in Genk in, in Belgium. And uh, I'd been introduced to him by Roddy Forsyth, the great Scottish journalist, because I was the guy from London and uh, Alex wouldn't have known me as the Aberdeen manager. And I said, I was I was there, I met you once at the semi, and I, in fact, I, I did commentated the BBC on, on your win with Aberdeen. And he had a very, very soft spot for that because it was his first big victory and it was Aberdeen and I'd put him on the map. And to, to be reminded of that, he clearly warmed to that memory. And then he said, uh, when I said what I wanted well, on Saturday, he said, but there'll be no problem. There'll be no problem. And as it happened, on the Friday night, we were staying in this, I was staying in the same hotel as Manchester United before the Southampton game. And we had a, another little chat uh, in the hotel. And I offered him to buy him a drink. He didn't want the drink, but he stopped to talk. Um, and so when the Saturday came, uh, he was as good as gold. And not only did he um, come for the interview, but he made sure that I got Roy Keane and Dennis Irwin because there was a, an Ireland game on the following Wednesday. And that obviously was going to be pertinent. As it so happened, there was a row with Sky and um, they weren't doing interviews Manchester United weren't doing interviews with Sky. And Martin Tyler, the Sky commentator, was was somewhat upset and was out on the pitch uh, walking up and down with his mobile phone, obviously telling his bosses that he wasn't getting these interviews and how mad he was and blah, blah, blah. And I was in the room uh, with uh, Keane and uh, Irwin and Alex. And Crooks said to me... Um, now that they're in here, do you think they'd speak to me? I said, there's only one way to find out. Ask them. And they did. So Dennis and Roy did interviews for a match of the day while Martin Tyler was still outside watching up the time. And then was the even doubly furious that the BBC had stolen a march on it because they happened to be in the room with, with, with RTE who had set up the interviews of the four nights before. I'm sure there's uh, professional rivalries there, George, at work. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. You talk about Roy Keane do tell mm. what was he like to deal with yeah roy roy, roy was a, a wonderful company um roy left uh, after a game in milan left uh, the table that itv were dining at to come and join the two rte lads because he fancied a bit of irish company roy was was never slow about getting into conversation with you when you were uh, out and about um I, i'm talking about um even as a player but he wasn't always, wasn't always, shall we say, the most cooperative when you wanted him for interview. I was standing uh, in what, what would count as the mixed zone at the old Lansdowne Road, uh, carefully positioned with camera uh, after a match uh, that uh, Jimmy would have commentated on. And uh, it, I think it might have been Roy's first game in Dublin. The, the circumstances don't don't really matter that much. It was early in Roy's international career and it would have been a big deal to get... Uh, to get a, a word from him. So uh, I was tasked with getting him and I'd got the others as they, they had to walk past me to get to the coach and they would stop and do the interview. And when I saw Roy coming, I, I called into the microphone to say, Roy's on his way. I'll have him in a moment. And as I'm saying that Roy is watching towards me and he can hear distinctly what I'm saying. And he said, Oh no, you won't. And he walked straight past me. <laughs> okay. So Roy gives me the impression that 
um, Roy calls the shots, and if he feels so inclined, he will, and if he doesn't, he'll let mm. you know pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. And uh, now, uh, one of your um, greatest compatriots, uh, uh, countrymen, and I presume you mentioned him in the book, I presume you, you knew him, George Best. Yes, yeah. He um, was a prisoner of the same church. So, so I read, yes. Yeah. W- were your feet christened uh, uh, as much as his? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he got all got it all got it all. He, got, he, he had got a lot of whatever was going. He got it all right. Yeah, he, he was special. But he he burst on the scene as a youngster, you know. And it, they, he came home because of homesickness, uh, and the, the career might never have been. But he was prevailed upon to go back and, and make make the career that he had. He I got to know him then um, because uh, he'd re- retired himself. Uh, from football uh, and was then kind of making a way back with Fulham. Uh, when Northern Ireland's management changed, uh, Dave Clements uh, was the player manager and they decided not to renew his contract because he was playing in the United States, which they reckoned wasn't a great idea for managing the Northern Ireland team. And they appointed the, the great icon, Danny Blanchflower, as manager of the Northern Ireland team. And Danny's first game was away to the Netherlands in Rotterdam in October 1976. And uh, he sprung a great surprise. He named George Best in his squad. And so George played that game. He played the Belgium game the next month. But in the course of all that, because we travelled and scheduled airlines, Northern Ireland travelled and scheduled airlines. And um, we, we travelled with the team. Uh, so we were with them, like, like the Republic, in the good old days, in the charting days. So I, got, I had the opportunity to get to know George Best, and um, it was uh, he, he was a lovely fella. He, he really was. I've heard so many people say that about him. You know, I mean, you'd expect, I suppose, some of his old teammates to talk about him, but they genuinely speak about him as a, a, a lovely guy, obviously with a problem, but a lovely guy. Yeah, he, yes. <laughs> he is. It, it's, it's funny... Um, there's a, a, a story I'll share with you because it was shared with me by uh, by a former colleague and a, a neighbour of mine, a BBC uh, reporter in the day um, by the name of Diane Harron, um, who was sent to interview uh, George Best for a news programme uh, at a time when she was heavily pregnant. And um, she arrived at the team hotel uh, requesting George Best. And uh, when Best was sent for and appeared on the landing, uh, the, the players in the lobby where Diane was waiting called him to say, hey, George, bearing in mind this is a pregnant lady, there's a woman here to see you. <laughs> <laughs> where did it all go wrong, George? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and uh, uh, my uh, my boss, uh, also who was on the phone earlier on, uh, here, my boss, not Martin Tyler's boss, uh, has asked me to ask you about um, Pele. Have you met Pele? Have you met Maradona? Have you been around that 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 circus? Uh, I met Pele in uh, the queue for a, 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 an air a flight um, in Mendoza in Argentina on my first World Cup, and uh, it was very fleeting. He was very charming. He signed an autograph for me, su amigo Pele, and. Uh, I still have that, uh, but that was the only time I actually met him. Uh, I didn't uh, get to meet Maradona, uh, though I saw him play and commentated on him. And I, I didn't get the opportunity to meet him. Um, so those those are 
brief meetings that I did have with, with two of the greats of the game. And who is your kind of your favorite player? Who who or who are they? What are the moments that have just wowed you the most? And who are the players who wowed you the most? Well, uh, going back, I think of the goal that Marco van Basten scored uh, in the 2-0 victory uh, of the Dutch over the Soviet Union uh, in Euro 88 was, was one of the most magnificent goals uh, I've ever seen. Uh, Arnold Buren's big looping cross and the volley from van Basten from the tightest of angles that, that nearly burst the net. Uh, I think of the goal that Michael Thomas scored for Arsenal uh, when they won the league in 1989, when Liverpool were top and could afford a, a 1-0 home defeat, but actually lost 2-0 to Arsenal, who won the league, took it from them. Um, you know, th- there are many, many moments that that stick out across the years. Um, Mesut Ozil, when he played properly for, for Germany, you know, when he when he was on, on his game. Um, so many, Gary, that it, it's hard to... To, to boil them down, you know, so many over the years. You also were present, as far as I can remember, from watching it on television at that uh, awful tragedy in Hillsborough. Yeah, weren't you John there? John and myself. Yes, we were there, John and I. That uh, must have been a spooky time. It it was. Uh, it really was, um, and it, you know, it was something that was uh, nobody could see that coming. Um, although, with hindsight, perhaps it was inevitable that something like that was going to happen somewhere at some stage, because those were the days, of course, when crowds would stand behind goals packed in tightly. I'm thinking of the cop at Anfield, and you know when Liverpool would score, there'd be a surge, and they'd run down the, 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 the this wave of of, of people put, pushing forward and then steadying up and going back again. So I, mean, I suppose it was inherently uh, possible that something awful would happen. Uh, if if the the cop the cop was not the issue because the cop was was properly properly run and they knew how many were in there and all the rest. What happened at Hillsborough was a was a a crowd control mistake, um, which uh, created a situation that should never have arisen. Um, it didn't look serious when it started, but, but none of these things do. Um, and it was only when they, the, 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 the images began to show of people being hoisted up into the upper deck of the stand to get, get out of that terrace. They left things laid down that it, it became very clear that there was something very, very wrong. Um, and, and it just it, it went down from there. It was, it was a, a truly awful experience. Yeah, I'm, uh, I remember watching it and, and it absolutely was and, and not quite what you'd, uh, I suppose, ever expected you'd be facing. But... Uh, live television uh, unfortunately exposes you to some pretty un- unlikely events, mm. uh, and 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 that too is a, is a moment where your words must be chosen very very carefully mm. in an, in something that's unfolding right in front of your eyes. I mean that that is a pressure because you spoke for quite a long time. Mm. Yes, uh, I'm being very very aware of of what you're saying because. Uh, it could so easily, uh, you could so easily say the wrong thing. I remember um, I, I was down to commentate on the European Cup final at Hazel Stadium in 85, but my father was very ill in hospital at the time. And so I was given compassionate leave and Jerk Canning did that commentary. And I was in Belfast uh, on my way to visit my father in the hospital uh, when the match would have been an hour away. 
and I, I had Radio 2, as it then was, on in the car uh, on the way to the hospital. And Peter Jones was on the radio uh, describing something that was happening in, in Brussels at, at the stadium. I, I came to it late uh, and he started, he made reference to bodies. And I said, That's, that this isn't right. Don't you, you, bodies are dead people. You can't talk about bodies. And then I realized that he was actually talking yeah. about bodies, that, that people were being killed. And it was the same sort of thing uh, at Hillsborough. And the seriousness of it became all too clear uh, when they started carting people away on advertising hoardings as makeshift stretch, uh, stretchers. And then across our field of vision went one advertising hoarding with two guys at either end and on it, someone with a jacket over his head, which could only mean one thing. I remember the image. Yeah. Um, and I know that uh, in the Euros just gone, of course, there was that horrifying moment of uh, of uh, Ericsson uh, when he when he fell mm. to the ground. So you must be able to take take on all eventualities, I guess. George, mm. uh, I could talk to you for the next three hours. You probably couldn't talk to me, but I, I could talk to you. Um, <laughs> I wanna I wanna ask you about about uh, one other string to your many bows and that is the whole music thing mm. you're you, you obviously work on lyric fm and you're you're a dj and have been for over 20 years where does all this musicality in you come from because you clearly know your 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 subject well uh, it started with uh, childhood piano lessons uh, and that led me to uh, learning the cello because in school, when they tried to put together a, a little orchestra, there would be those children, I'm talking nine, ten-year-olds, who would not have any musical training at all. So they were being taught for the first time, and they were being taught on the treble clef where the, where the melody line would be. And those of us who were getting piano lessons would be aware of the bass clef, which is where the cello music would be placed. And so that's how I was put on the cello. And when I went to, then to Methody, uh, I was kind of uh, invited to join the orchestra because... I had played the cello before, and I find that I enjoyed this um, immensely because it was uh, it was something that uh, appealed to my sensibilities in the sense that uh, it was a team, like a football team, except it was playing music. Everybody had their part to play, and it was a team exercise. And there was that, and also the fact, that, funnily enough, I continued my piano lessons, and I had them during school time so that I would be excused a class in a different subject once a week to go from a piano lesson in school. Uh, and I enjoyed that um, because it, it broke up the day uh, nicely, just as, a, as PE classes would have. So I got an, an extra uh, piece of light relief from the, the grind of, of, of actual schoolwork. Uh, and I, I discovered that I, I liked music. So I kept it on until O-level, which was uh, when I would be 16. Uh, and that was a small class with a, the head of music was a man called Henry Willis, who was a great teacher and a, a great imparter of of, uh, of of the love of, of music and, and a great man for explaining what was going on with the music. So even though I was a, a normal teenager with uh, favorite bands, and I've mentioned the show bands, there was the Beatles, of course, and my own favorite band was the Hollies. Uh, and I didn't realize until only recently that they were named after Buddy Holly, but there you go. I suppose it should have been obvious. Um, but <laughs> when, when, into, 
into my into my working life, I, I I realized that I actually enjoyed classical music as much as I enjoyed popular music, and I started going to the odd concert. Um, and one thing led to another, and when uh, the time came for a lyric to be set up, I was on the lookout for the odd opportunity in radio because uh, I like radio um, and I'd begun in radio. I wasn't in a position to offer myself as a, a regular uh, on the schedule, but I, I figured if, if there's any gaps or need a, a stand-in, I, I might be of use to them. And um, and that's where it all came from. And um, eventually, 2003, uh, the Hamilton Scores was born, and here we are, all those years on. I have heard you play piano at a Christmas party in RTE, <laughs> and you are, I can tell the uh, listeners, he is a very... Very good. I mean, you've got a uh, potential career as uh, as a as a pianist in in a bar somewhere. Well, <laughs> play it play it again, George. Uh, yeah. and, uh, or or say it again, George. Uh, George, it's been really fantastic talking to you. Um, this might sound a bit corny, George. But I, I, I have to ask: Would you say it one more time? Would you say the nation hold its breath? This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck with uh, with your your final endeavors, whatever they are. Uh, uh, I th- you're going to the World Cup, aren't you? In in yes, two thousand and twenty-two, yeah. yeah? Yeah. And beyond as well. Uh, good luck, George, with everything. And thank, thank you very you. much for, for talking to me. Thank you for having me, Gary. Thanks very much indeed. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.